This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, when all has been heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Good morning. How's everybody doing? Good. Well, my name is Chad Cruiser. And my wife and I have a ministry called Anchor Point Films. We produce documentaries. We go around to archaeologists, historians, theologians, scholars. And we make documentaries with the purpose of reaching people with the message of the Bible, the message of health. We specifically make things for the purpose of reaching people who may not be believers at all in the Bible. So that's generally with our films, our target audience, specifically for our documentaries that we, that we make. We have a series called Scripture Mysteries, where we, the first, first documentary, the purpose is to establish the validity of the Bible. Uh, these documentaries, some of them have been shown at you know, secular university campuses to give evidence for the Bible, for Jesus, and for the truth that the Word of God contains. And so the first one is to establish the validity of the Bible, and the next one is to establish the validity of Jesus. And um, we also have a series, uh, a, a new documentary, I should say, specifically on health, and it mixes together archaeology, history, and cultures of longevity. Very fascinating information that can be beneficial to you for your own spiritual walk, but it is also something that is a blessing to share with people. We made them so they'd be something that people would not be afraid or ashamed to share with their friends at school, co-workers, family members, what have you. But before we begin this morning, I just want to say a prayer. So let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to study science As we talk about your word also, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Kind of our thesis text we've looked at over and over is Proverbs 18, verse 17, which says, the one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. Now, if you've gone to, uh, you know, specifically public schooling, and you were taught from a child in the different textbooks, in the different scientific textbooks, you were given a perspective of the origins of the world, of the universe for that matter. And so you're given one side of the story, and it's very convincing because they are not allowed to give you the other side of the story. Now, I'm not even saying telling people, they like in public schools, that we have to teach people, oh, God did it, just tell people that God, no. But you can't even, I mean, it's almost like you shouldn't even tell the other side of the story and show how these things, many of them have literally been proven wrong. And, and the scientists at the top know that many of the things in the textbooks, we're just going to look at a few of them quickly. But if you study into it, and I want to share with you a book um, that never even mentions God, but it's a, it's a fantastic book on the issue of creation and evolution, though it never mentions even spirituality within the book. It's a book called Icons of Evolution. Icons, I-C-O-N-S, Icons of Evolution. And this book is by a man by the name of Jonathan Wells, W-E-L-L-S. I'll be quoting from him here in this presentation, at least during some of it. 
And what he does is he goes through some of the greatest icons of evolution, some of the greatest proofs of evolution, and reveals that even top scientists sometimes say that these things, we just know they're not true, yet guess where they remain? In the textbooks. Why? Because no other good proof has come out that could establish the theory of evolution as well as these icons, yet we know they're not true, so they stay in the books for upwards of 90 years. You'll see at least one of them has for 90 years scientists have known it's not true, and it hasn't left the textbooks yet, and it probably never will, by the way. Because how would they prove a theory that is losing ground day by day? And we're going to look at this. Don't take my word for it. Now, uh, the reason this picture is so terrible, because I just took it, you know, a picture of a magazine when I was in the library, in the Chicago library, um, of the sci- this issue of science magazine, not a Christian periodical. It's interesting because when we think of life growing about in, you know, in the, in the biology textbooks, we see something like a tree of life, right? Maybe you've seen that, you know, a simpler, what we think of as simpler creatures at the lower end, and it slowly branches off till you get to maybe, you know, the... Uh, ocean animals, and then they begin to, you know, get to the, you know, they turn into land animals, and it branches off, and finally you get to mammals, and then those mammals slowly turn into, uh, you know, their first quadrupeds for, you know, they walk on all fours, and then they, then they turn into bipedal creatures, they, talk, they turn into animals that can walk on two feet, and they finally turn into human beings. So it branches off into the various forms of life. And so the idea of natural selection is presented in textbooks. And I think there is a form of natural selection, but natural selection doesn't create new kinds of creatures. It can just weed out certain kinds of creatures. Meaning, what? we'll look into it. Don't don't take my word for it. Now, I'm just going to read to you a quotation about natural selection here from Science Magazine. This is just a picture of it here. It says, Natural selection is a central feature of neo-Darwinism. It is allowed in Brooks and Wiley's theory, but only as a minor influence. See, natural selection can affect survivorship, says Brooks. It can weed out some of the complexity and so slow down the information decay that results in speciation. It may have a stabilizing effect, but it does not promote speciation. So scientists are beginning to look at this and say, okay, yeah, yeah, like, for instance, if certain animals have stronger beaks, certain birds and birds of the same species have smaller beaks, and their small beaks can't break open certain nuts or seeds that they need in their area, the smaller ones may die off. Does that make sense? But does that mean the ones with bigger beaks are becoming another animal? No. No new information was added, by the way. No new information was added. So this doesn't mean that something new is happening. It just means you lost some genetic information. This has nothing to do with additional genetic information, yet we somehow imagine, oh no, some of the animals have died off, that's evolution. Now, if dying off uh, certain portions of a species, if that is evolution, do you see how sometimes we hear part of the picture and it's very convincing, like, wow, it's true, animals with bigger beaks are more likely to survive, and the fittest survive. 
Well, yeah, the fittest survive. That's kind of obvious, right? But that doesn't mean it's becoming a new creature. And the scientists are looking at it and saying, well, maybe, maybe this doesn't actually create new species. Maybe it just has a stabilizing effect on the animals. It says it is not a creative force, as many people have suggested. It doesn't create new kinds of animals because certain animals die off because they're not as well adapted to certain environmental changes. I'll give you an example. Here are the, anybody know what we call these? They're the Darwin's finches. I mean, that's not the proper name for the birds, but that's what we call them in the you know, evolutionary textbooks, right? They're Darwin's finches. And what's different about these birds? You tell me. The beak size, right? So you have some of the, some of the smaller beaks, and then you have significantly larger beaks. But in certain situations, larger beaks are beneficial, maybe to break open certain nuts or seed, to get the seed inside of a, uh, you know, a shell. But there are other time periods where actually having a smaller beak is beneficial. Now, by the way, these birds have within them the genetic information already. You understand what I'm saying? Meaning some people have bigger noses, like I have a bigger nose than many of you probably do, right? Some of you have smaller noses, like we, we have these different things. There can be benefits, there can be negatives to these various different things. But let's look at what we see here about this. Sorry about the cap locks there. It says, during the 1970s, on, you know, this is in the Galapagos Islands, on Daphne Major, that's one of the islands there, received regular rainfall that supported an abundant food supply and a large finch population. In normal rainy seasons, such as that of 1976, the island received about five inches of rain, but in 1977, only about an inch fell. As a result of the drought, the average beak depth of medium ground finches increased about 5%. So the beaks became about 5% larger. Now keep in mind, was new genetic information produced during that season? No. They already had that genetic information, so nothing had really changed except some came out with, they, they were born with 5% larger beaks. No new information. So we're not, we're not creating some new kind of creature here. It's just the genetics that God put within them exhibited a larger beak with the genetics they already had. So this doesn't prove that new genes are coming about in this situation, particularly anyway. And so, yes, they increased by 5%. In Scientific American in 91, Peter Grant explains how this could happen, at least in theory, calling the increase in beak depth during severe drought a selection event. Grant estimated that the number of such events required to transform the medium ground finch into another species, so he just estimates, he guesses. The number is surprisingly small. About 20 selection events would have sufficed if droughts occurred once a decade on average. Repeated directional selection at this rate, with no selection in between droughts, would transform one species into another within 200 years. Now, by the way, if over time some of, you know, you, you kept going to a larger beak, larger beak, larger beak, larger beak, and it doesn't mean it keeps getting giant, 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 but meaning if you stick with the ones with larger beaks, over time you may lose the genetic information for the smaller beak. But notice, you've only lost information. You understand? 
You're not creating a new species. I mean, in the sense of, sure, maybe it at some point wouldn't be able to mate with the former species, but it didn't become something like better or, or more, more diversity within the genetics. Actually, it lost its genes. So in a sense, it would be devolution, right? It would actually be losing. It wouldn't be growing in information or adding new information. It is a loss of information. So this is very interesting. So it says, after the 1982 and 83, uh, El Nino, with food once again plentiful, the average beak size in medium ground finches, what happened? It returned to its normal size. God made within creatures various genetics so that if they were in certain situations, if they were in a traumatic environment, that something could happen, that humans, that animals could actually adapt to the situation. I mean, you think about this. Human beings down in Africa. Now, if a white man were running around in Africa for year after year with no shirt on, I mean, what's going to happen? He'll probably be riddled with cancer. But God gave us within humanity the ability to, to have our genes do different things for us. What a benefit that men with darker skin, that their skin can hold off with the more pigment can keep them, they're less likely to get sunburn, right? less likely to have some of the diseases that would result from that. God, God made these things within humanity. And what a blessing that we have that. And so these, once again, these, the beak did not just continue to grow. Once the rain came back and the seeds were easier to open, what happened? The birds went back to what they were originally, right? So, and, and so this is the thing. What they do is... The extrapolation is like this. They extrapolated, okay, so when there was a drought, the beak size grew. And so they extrapolated that it would just keep doing this. It would get higher and higher and higher, larger, you know, and finally they would be basically a different creature. That's what they imagined. And really, I mean, we, you know, we call these hypotheses and things like that, which, which sounds very scientific, but the reality is it's what we call a guess, an imagination. It takes imagination to imagine that. What happened in the imagination was this, but when they actually looked at the real evidence of what happened in, on the island, it went like this, which means virtually nothing happened. Does that make sense? So the beat got a tiny bit bigger, but then right after that it dropped to where it was, and it just kind of went here, right? I mean, the reality is, is God made this, these within creatures, and, and this natural selection is not creating a whole new kind of creature, by the way. Nor, by the way, is it, is it creating a whole new organ. Meaning, what was it that changed? The beak. It was bigger or it was smaller, but it was still a beak. Do you see? I mean, how could organs like a heart come about from a non-heart? How could organs like a liver with the functions of a liver come about from a non liver. How could something like a brain come about from a non-brain with all the nerves that have to interact to communicate with each other, to receive stimuli from sense of touch, from visual cue, from the eyes? How could, how could the brain come about and have these things before it was a brain? You see, natural selection doesn't tell us that something could come about from a non-something. Does that make sense? I'm not even using technical terminology, but I think you get the point here. But what's interesting is, so this is what happened. You had a tiny, tiny, I mean 5%. You had a tiny bump in beak change, the beak size change, and, and then it did absolutely nothing after that. But 
The scientist won't tell you that. When you read your biology textbook, you will read this. This is from a biology textbook from Prentice Hall, Life Science. It says, since Darwin published his book, scientists have observed many examples of evolution in action. I mean, that sounds very convincing. In, 77, in, this, in a study of the 1977 of the finches on Daphne Major, one of the Galapagos Islands, scientists observed the beak size could change very quickly by natural selection. That year, little rain fell on the island on only 25 millimeters. You get the story. And what happened? It says down here. Finches with larger and stronger beaks were better able to open the tough pods that were, that were finch, um, than were finches with smaller beaks, weaker beaks. Many of the finches with the smaller beaks did not survive the drought. The next year, more finches on the island had larger and stronger beaks. But notice they don't tell you what happened after that. They don't tell you that right after that with more rain, it just went back to the way they were. That's not there. You only get part of the story. The one who states this case first seems right until the other comes in, examines him. This is the tough thing that if you're in school and you never look into the answers of what you read in your textbook, it will be thoroughly convincing and you'll think, my poor parents. Oh, these ignorant Christians, these ignorant Adventists, right? They just believe what they're told because, you know, God created the world in six days. And you only hear one side of the story in school because they don't want you to hear the whole story. They don't want you to hear what I just told you. I really believe they don't. Because if you heard the whole story, you might think the theory is not very solid, right? So what it says, evolution by natural selection had occurred in just one year. Sounds very convincing, doesn't it? Until you hear the rest of the story, right? then you know, oh, no, 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 they just went back to normal. Right, right after that, they just went back to normal. No big deal, right? This is no great proof that you could become something different than you are as far as a different creature. You might have a bigger beak, and you might lose some genetic information, but that does not prove that you're becoming a higher species, by the way. And this is not necessarily a lie. This is a partial truth, meaning when, when scientists look at things like, they call this New Mexico's Unfinished Symphony, another subject. They said this was started 2,500 million years ago. And what they look at is you look in a, in a cave and you have stalactites and you have stalagmites. And the, you know, the stalactites are the ones on the, you know, coming down from the ceiling and the stalagmites have the appearance of growing up from the ground. They don't grow up from the ground. They obviously, the, you know, it, it is dropping as the minerals come down from the water from the stalactites. It hits the ground, and, and slowly, in a sense, it does grow, yes. Now, what's interesting about this is, you know, it says tiny drops over millions of years created Carlsbad caverns, and it would seem so, meaning if you were to measure the rate at which the stalactites were growing today, it is very, very slow. Because, by the way, if you're in this area, you find in New Mexico that there's very little rain, right? Do we know that New Mexico has always been very, very dry since the beginning of planet Earth? No. <laughs> we don't know that, do we? There may have been times where it was, number one, you know, everywhere you go virtually, you'll hear scientists say, this area used to be under the ocean, under the sea, right? So if it used to be much wetter, could these grow faster in the past? Yes or no? They most certainly could. So just looking at how something is growing today does not guarantee or necessitate that that is the way it was in the past. So, I mean, you may have seen this before. This is the Lincoln Memorial. You have stalactites growing under this, and it was built in 1922, and this was in the 1960s. Look at how long some of the stalactites. This is, I mean, you're, you're talking what? You know, not even, you know, right around 40 years. And yet you can have stalactites that are 
maybe three, four, five feet long, right? Depending on how much what? Precipitation, how much water, how much humidity is in that area. So here too, this is a, uh, um, this is from National Geographic magazine. And what you see is you see this is a um, stalagmite, you know, from the ground. And this, on this stalagmite, this is a, a dead bat, a dead bat fell. And he was covered with flowstone before he could fully deteriorate. Now, obviously that wouldn't have taken, you know, millions of years for that to happen. The, the, this little creature would have decomposed. It must have been a very rapid rate of growth for this stalagmite. You may have seen this. This is in, um, you know, this is Liberty Magazine, by the way. Who, who puts out Liberty Magazine? Yeah, it's the Adventist Church. And so this is taken from Liberty Magazine of May, June of, of 1993. And this is a 100-year-old flowstone formation in Thermopolis, Wyoming. The story goes that a man, that there was a spring coming out of the ground and a man stuck a pipe in it. So the water began to rush out the top of the pipe. And as it did so, within 100 years, you had this massive rock formation. So does it take millions of years for rock formations to take place? I mean, this is 100 years. So can it take million, or could it, I, I should say theoretically, could it take million years or millions of years or billions? Sure it could, if, if it were very dry and things were very slow moving. But you see, in certain events with the right situation, and by the way, imagine something as catastrophic as a worldwide flood, how much this would change the picture of the history of planet Earth. And I believe there's plenty of evidence for the flood. We go on here. This is a fossilized, or a petrified rather, a petrified tree, a portion of a petrified tree. But what do you see in that portion of the petrified tree? You see someone had taken an axe to it. And they had taken the axe, obviously, when the tree was not like stone meaning they had hit it when it was soft, and yet obviously this is not millions of years old. So it doesn't necessarily take massive quantities of time. Actually, petrification or fossilization can happen very, very rapidly. And don't take my word for it. I'm going to share with you something that is almost traumatic to think about just now. This is an article here from the India Tribune. It says, dead baby removed from abdomen after 27 years. So a woman had become pregnant, and something had happened. She uh, wasn't able to deliver. Whatever happened, the baby died, and what ended up happening was this. Indonesian surgeons have delivered a 27-year-old baby, now obviously it wasn't alive, from a middle-aged housewife who had carried the dead body inside her because she was too poor to have it removed, doctors said today. Well, you say, what does this have to do with what we're talking about? A team of 15 doc doctors operated for three hours yesterday to retrieve the 1.6 kilogram, what baby? Petrified baby from the 54-year-old woman identified as Tamina at the Sutomo General Hospital in, Java, in the city, Java Island city of Surabaya. So what do we see here? That this woman had a petrified baby inside of her for 27 years. Now obviously, it must have petrified very rapidly, and, and you say, why? Because what would have happened to a dead body in a, in a woman's womb? It would have decomposed, and how long, do you think it would have taken 10 years for it to decompose? It would have decomposed, very, I mean, she would have had rotting within her. 
and yet she didn't have rotting within her. Instead, the body somehow put minerals in the place of the soft tissue that was the baby, and it became a, like a stone, like a rock, inside of her womb. So you see that in, a very, in very wet conditions, with minerals circulating around uh, what was living tissue, you can have very, very rapid potentially either petrification or fossilization. Very interesting. So in a wet environment, you would expect to have, and by the way, there, now there's different kinds of fossilization. There's different ways that it takes place, but one of the key ways that many times, or the majority of the time, I would believe it is, that you specifically have to have water. Because the soft tissue, if water is there with minerals in the water, that the minerals can potentially replace, or at least stick to the tissue, and it ends up turning this this you know, uh, former living matter into what it seems like stone ultimately. So it doesn't necessarily take millions of years or very long time periods for these things to happen. Actually, it can be very, very rapid. So one of the things that you will learn in textbooks that I have to tell you is complete and utter, a, a complete and utter fabrication. And I don't say that to be mean. I say that to be honest. And you're going to see the greatest skeptic on the planet agrees that we do not know how life came about from non-life. I'm going to share that with you in just a moment. So looking at creating life, many of you may have heard of the Miller-Urey experiment. Now, if you were raised in a Christian home and you went to Christian schooling and you never went through biology textbooks, or uh, you may not have seen these kind of things. But if you went to uh, any, if you read any kind of normal, just secular textbook, you see that, uh, you see the Miller-Urey experiment. How many of you have ever heard of the Miller-Urey experiment? Okay, a number of you. Now, the Miller-Urey experiment kind of worked like this. There was, um, actually, I think I just have it written out. So Miller relied on the atmospheric theory of his advisor, Harold, Harold Urey. Now, this is the way it worked. What they did is they set up a contraption in their laboratory. See, their belief system amongst evolutionists is that life had to come about from non-life, and it must have come about from kind of a soupy, earthy atmosphere, not atmosphere, but the original conditions of the earth must have just been water sloshing over rocks, and you'd have, you know, lightning taking place. And and the idea is that this water rushing over rocks, maybe with the lightning hitting and with with chemicals chemicals in the water, that maybe it would create, what? Amino acids create proteins. And these things would have had to just coalesce, they would have had to come together, and maybe the lightning could shock life into them, and that, that single-celled organism was, we could say, birthed from nature, but now, now that sounds maybe somewhat simple, but that first single-celled organism had to have the DNA within it to then duplicate itself. Does that make sense? It was immediately made with the information necessary to replicate life. And in Darwin's day, that would seem very simple, wouldn't it? Because life was very simple in Darwin's day. In Darwin's day. Because is life very simple today? No. We know that a thimble, a thimble rather, a thimble full of cultured liquid can have billions of bacteria billions, right? These things are so small. And then we think, well, if they're that small, they're obviously very what? Simple. I mean, that would be a logical conclusion, but it would be wrong, right? These things are so, I mean, a single-celled organism is like as complex as a city. 
But it's just so tiny, it's hard. You, you wouldn't imagine it'd be so complex. So what ended up happening is they set up a contraption. They tried to make the ancient atmosphere within this contraption. They would shock it. You'd have shocks taking place. And so as it's shocking it, the liquid, you know, having, you know, certain components in it, they would see if, if it would create amino acids or it would create proteins. Well, what ended up happening? So they thought, they believed at that time that the ancient atmosphere would have been water, methane, ammonia, and hydrogen. This is what they guessed. Once again, remember, these are hypotheses. And it turns out they, I mean, now they believe it's totally different. But let's go forward. Chemical analysis ident identified several organic compounds. So they're shocking, they're shocking in this, you know, beaker here, or whatever you call it. They're shocking away here. And so then they end up having this kind of soot down in, the, in one of the contraptions. And you can see what ends up happening is they look at it, and chemical analysis identified several organic compounds, including glycogen and alanine, the, the two simplest amino acids found in proteins. So no proteins were made, by the way, but some amino acids were formed. Now, are amino acids living beings or living creatures in some capacity? Not at all. They're the building blocks of life, yes, but they're not living creatures. So they became very excited and they said, we have now, we, we can see that, that nature can create the building blocks of life. And in your textbooks, they'll just tell you, yep, they figured out how life began. Simple as that. We're going to go forward and find out what actually happens. Then now scientists, the secular scientists, ask the question, did Miller actually use the right atmosphere? And it says in Science Magazine, said in 1995, the experts now dismiss Miller's experiment. So Miller's experiment, they say today, is rubbish. Well, that's good. They took it out of the textbooks then, right? Did they take it out of the textbooks? No. We've known since 1995 that it was rubbish, yet it stays in the textbooks. Now, do you see something's not right here? Now, I understand it's going to take some years to get something out of the textbooks, but 1995, we're more than 20 years later, and guess what? Do you think it's still in textbooks today? You can quite imagine it is, and I'll bet it'll never leave unless they can come up with something better. But it stays there to this day. And they say, they say the reason it was rubbish is because the early atmosphere looked nothing like the Miller-Urey simulation. Meaning, they're saying, listen, we don't believe that's what the early atmosphere looked like, so why could, you can't use that as evidence for how life could have come about from non-life. So Jonathan Wells, who's a PhD, he's the one who wrote the book that I told you about, Icons of Evolution. He has a great book. And he asked the question, Jonathan Wells asked, well, what if someone used a more realistic ancient atmosphere that scientists now believe, at least, once again, they're still surmising what the ancient atmosphere would have been, which would have been, they think, well, maybe it'd be water vapor, carbon dioxide, and nitrogen. So what if they use what they now imagine the ancient atmosphere would have been like? And what does Jonathan Wells say? He says, you do not get any amino acids, that's for sure. So you don't get any amino acids from a more realistic, so we have no idea how life could have come about. No idea. None whatsoever. He says, some of the textbooks fudge by saying, well, even if you use a realistic atmosphere, you still get organic molecules if, as if that solves the problem. And that sounds good, like organic molecules. You're almost thinking of something alive with the word organic, aren't you? You're like, ah, oh, yeah, that sounds good, you know? Organic mole molecules. And he goes on to say, do you know what you get when you use an... an a more realistic atmosphere, he says you get embalming fluid. Now, is embalming fluid 
generally beneficial to living creatures. It keeps a dead creature from, from deteriorating, right, from breaking down. So ultimately, the whole Miller-Urey experiment, see, and the sad thing is poor kids read about this in school, and you know what? They believe it. Why? Because the one who states his case first seems right until somebody tells you the other side of the story. Do you see how serious these things are? Very serious. But whole biology continued to tell us the same thing. Miller simulated the earlier conditions as hypothesized by O'Paran and Urey and other scientists. I think they even knew by this point that his, they said he used their, their, it's true that he used their idea that scientists now say is rubbish. But they still put it in the textbook and don't tell you that we don't believe it, right? And they say, his experiments produce the chemicals of life. Do you see how that sounds like we, we know how life came about from non-life? Totally sounds like that. That's, that's what they want you to believe. Do you see that this is indoctrination? It is. It is 100% indoctrination. But I'm going to share with you. How many of you have seen the documentary called Expelled? Anybody seen Expelled? Okay, just a few of you. Um, fascinating documentary. It's by a Jewish man by the name of Ben Stein, who is a presidential speechwriter. Uh, he was on a show that I used to watch back when I was a kid. Um, you know, I wasn't raised in Adventist. On the Wonder Years, he was the teacher, the boring teacher on the show. And basically, Ben Stein, he's, this, he's a very intelligent man. And he goes around and he interviews the top evolutionists, some of the top evolutionists in the world, one of which is who? Dawkins, right? Richard Dawkins, the most famous skeptic on planet Earth today. And he asks him questions about the origin of, of the universe, the origin of life. I want you to notice, I just wrote out what he said. So Ben Stein, he's the Jewish guy. He, um, he asks Richard Dawkins, Dawkins is a skeptic. Ben Stein says, well then, who made the heavens and the earth? Dawkins says, why do you use the word who? I mean, he's an atheist. <laughs> he doesn't believe God made it. Why do you use the word who? He said, well, when, well how, then how did it get created? Dawkins says, well, uh, by a very slow process. And he says, well, then how did it start? Dawkins says, nobody knows how it got started. We know the kind of event it must have been. We know the sort of event that must have happened for the origin of life. Well, what is that? He asks the question, what is that? Richard Dawkins says, it is the origin of the self, first self-replicating molecule. So he's saying the origin of life must have been the creation of a self-replicating, well, how did that happen? Right? Nobody knows. And the good thing is he's honest. I appreciate Richard Dawkins' honesty. He asked him, how did that happen? He says, I told you, we don't know. Ben Stein says, so you have no idea how it started? Richard Dawkins says, nor has anybody. This is the greatest skeptic who has the best information on evolution on the planet. I don't think probably almost anybody, at least he's the most vociferous about it, I don't think anybody out there has any better information than this man. And when asked, so how did life come about from non-life? He says, we have no idea. Nobody has any idea. But he goes on even further. That's not the end of it. So Ben Stein, the Jew, says, nor has anybody. What do you think is the possibility that intelligent design might turn out to be the answer for some issues in genetics or in, the, or in Darwinian evolution? Notice what Dawkins says. This is key. He said, well, it could come about in the following way. It could be that some 
at some earlier time in the universe, a civilization evolved probably by some Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology and designed... So notice, somewhere in the universe, these beings evolved and they had a high level of technology and they designed a form of life that they seeded perhaps onto this planet. Meaning, so there was these very intelligent creatures in another part of the universe, and they were so intelligent that they made these forms of life that they seeded like bacteria or single-celled organisms, and they sent them, they seeded them on planet Earth like you might seed a garden. And so that is what brought about life. Now this is the the most popular evolutionist on the planet. His job, the guy's made millions of dollars fighting religion. That's, that's what he does. But in the end, he says, we don't know how it happened. But he said, it could be intelligent design. That's what he says. He says, now that is a possibility and an intriguing possibility. And I suppose it is possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the details of biochemistry and molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of what? Designer. Now, I think... I don't mean that he's trying to be dishonest. I actually appreciate his honesty. Number one, we have no idea how it happened. The textbooks act like they do, and they don't. They're lying to children. They're books of lies. They, they begin with lies, and then they go on. The thing is, once they get away from evolution, much of the science in the books is wonderful. But in the beginning, they start with a lie, right? That's how the book starts. And so you think, because all of the rest of it is scientific, the first part must have been scientific too. Does that make sense? I mean, you you would expect because they're all together. It's science. But here's the thing. This man, Richard Dawkins, says, we don't know how it happened, but he said it might have been that superintelligent beings that came about from Darwinian evolution somewhere else in the universe, they were so intelligent that they created some kind of seeds of life and they seeded it to other planets and you could find signature of a designer on planet Earth. Do you see what he might be saying? He might be saying, if we find evidence of design in creation... That's proof of evolution. Do you see a problem with that, yes or no? It's kind of like you can't argue against evolution no matter what. Meaning, no matter what you find, even if you have proof that it was designed by a higher intelligence, that is proof of evolution. It just doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. And yet this is the most, and I'm not putting the brother down. But I think this just covers all bases. He's covering all bases. He, like, there's a fear amongst evolutionists that what if, what if you did find evidence of a designer? And I think we have. I think we totally have. And I'll, I'll share some of that tomorrow. But let's go forward. So it says, this man is telling us this. And he said, yeah, there may be a signature of a designer in nature. I find this very fascinating. So I'm going to give you another evidence for evolution that we know is not true. Peppered moths. Anybody ever heard of the peppered moss and how they prove evolution? All right, quite a few of you. So this gives you an idea. In, in England, you have what are called peppered moss. Now, they're the same kind of creature, but they have different colors. Like humans, we have different colors, right? We're still human. We're equally human. We just have different colors. And you have a lighter colored one and a darker colored peppered moth. And this, they say about this, they say this, this is the Inter- International Wildlife Encyclopedia. This is the most striking evolutionary change ever to have been witnessed by man. You say, well, what do you mean? What, what happened, Chad? Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you. So Isaac Asimov, 
says one of the arguments of the creationists is that no one has ever seen the forces of evolution at work. And he said this would seem to be uh, the most nearly irrefutable of their arguments, and yet it too is wrong. In fact, if any confirmation of Darwinism were needed, it has turned up in the examples of natural selection that have taken place, I'm, not sure, I'm sorry it says it like that, before our eyes. Now that we know what to watch for, a notable example occurred in Darwin's native land. In England, it seems the peppered moth exists in two varieties, a light and a dark. Now, what ended up happening? Let's look at this. So, a hypothesis explaining the replacement of light moths by dark moths can be formed using Darwin's theory of evolution by natural selection. Dark peppered moths are common in the industrial areas where the tree trunks are darkened by the soot of pollution. So pollution came in, the tree trunks are darker, and so which one would be harder to see if the tree trunk was dark, which moth, the lighter the dark, would be harder to see? If the tree trunk is dark, yeah, yeah, they would be harder to see. So the ones that would be easier to see would be the light ones, and that means birds would be more likely to eat the light one. Does that make sense? And so once again, they see, see, this is evidence of natural selection. And I have no problem with it being naturally the ones that they can see better would be selected. But once again, does this mean that the dark ones are becoming a different creature? No, it just means over time they may lose the genetic potential to make light ones. You lost information, but somehow we forget to, we forget to think it through and think, oh, a change took place. But the change is a negative over time, meaning that they have less genetic information. It's positive because they're not dying off as much. But it's no genetic gain. It's not like a net gain for them. There can be a benefit to it. But here's in what's interesting. What does it say? It says, dark moths are camouflaged on the soot-darkened bark and so are, are not eaten by birds. Light moths, on the other hand, would stand out against a dark background and would be easy prey for hungry birds. Now, once again, if we left it at this, it sounds like, wow, a real change is taking place. We see the one who states this case first seems right until the other comes and examines it. Let's examine this and look at the newest information that scientists have given us on peppered moths. Well, Finnish zoologist Kari Mikola experimented in 1984 to discover the moth's resting places. It seems certain that peppered moths rest where they are hidden. They concluded that exposed areas of tree trunks are not an important resting site for peppered moths. So the study went like this. The original study with Kettlewell, the scientist Kettlewell, he took peppered moths, dark and light ones, during the daytime, by the way, and he let them out. And in the daytime, some of them flew onto a tree trunk. But we're going to find that peppered moths, number one, do not fly during the day. So the, the study was accidentally biased right from the beginning. We go on and read. It says, But peppered moths are night flyers and normally find resting places on trees before dawn. The moss kettlewell released in the daytime remained exposed and became an easy target, or they became easy targets for predatory birds. So meaning, he put them... He put them, you know, he ended up putting them on the tree trunks or at least let them go on the tree trunks, but normally they wouldn't do that. Normally they would be hidden. So the whole idea that the tree trunks are a great proof of how they would get picked off was just wrong from the start. That's not even where they typically would rest. So the idea starts with a false premise. 
It says the Industrial Revolution affected the natural selection in peppered moss in England. As pollution blackened the tree trunks, black moss became more likely to survive and reproduce. See, the textbooks keep telling us this, but now we found that, do you know that the scientists, they tell us, they actually had to glue them to the trees for the pictures because that's not where they would find them. Or they would pin them to the trees or they would put them on the trees because you wouldn't normally find them there. But it's very convincing. If you look, go look at a textbook, they'll show you them on tree trunks. And do you see how the bias is just promoted? That even though they normally would be hidden somewhere up in upper branches and wouldn't be on darkened tree trunks, that's not where they even exist. To this day, it's promoted in textbooks. We've known since 85, so we've known for over 30 years, over 30 years, that this is just not true. So we saw the first one was 20-year-old information, still in the textbooks. 30-year-old information, still in the textbooks. But one of the ones I love the most, we're just looking at three major things here this morning. You can look at more. Like I said, read, read the book by Wells, read uh, Icons of Evolution. There's various books like this. Um, Ernst Haeckel, or Haeckel. Um, this, this man, he was a German biologist from the 1830s to 1920. He died anyway in 1920. And this man, many evolutionists, even Darwin himself, thought this man had shown the best evidence for evolution. The number one greatest proof for evolution. At least this was the idea. And what he showed was this. That as you take creatures and you look at them in what we call embryology, as you look at them in the process of their evolution, we could say, within the womb or in the egg, that in the beginning they look what? Identical. And then as they start to grow larger, they look a little different, you know, but not much. I mean, these, these ones still all look almost identical until you get over, you know, to the salamander and the fish. But you notice they only begin to change in the latter form of their growth process. They only start to look different. And, and so they say, look, we really all began as the same thing. And I've got to tell you, when you look at this picture, that is convincing, isn't it? That's quite convincing. I mean, you just got to be honest. And you sit in your science class and you've never heard the other side of the story and your heart drops. And you're like, oh, my poor ignorant church. My poor parents. They've never looked into these things. They just believe it by faith. But we, I got to live by science. I can't, li I can't lie to myself. I mean, look at it. It's convincing. What did Darwin say about it? Thus, as it seems to me, the leading facts in embryology, which are second in importance to none in natural history, meaning there is no greater proof of evolution of, in natural history than the evidence that I just showed you. This is the most powerful. And I got to say, it looks very, very solid. Now, here's the thing. These are his drawings. These were drawings by Ernst Haeckel. This man, these are the drawings he had, but I'm going to show you what the pictures look like in reality if you actually take a picture of them and don't just draw pictures like this man. Do you see a difference? This is what he said they look like, and this is what they look like in reality. Do you see a difference between his drawing? Now, I am not a good artist, But do you see something wrong here? <laughs> Come on now. Like, I could do a better job than that, and I'm not being prideful. You, you understand what I'm saying? Like, obviously, whoever, like, Ernst was not that bad of a drawer. He was actually pretty skilled at drawing. 
And yet he made that mistake? Come on, I mean, I mean look at these things. And, and this is the reality. So when someone states their case first, it's super, super solid. And check this out. Once again, my bad picture, I went and took this at the Chicago uh, Library. New Scientist found the original magazine from 1997. And in that, this is just opening up the magazine. Notice, notice what it says. New Scientist magazine, September 6, 1997. Embryonic what? Fraud lives on. So did you know? I mean, just notice what it, I mean, I'm going to literally read to you what it says here. So here's Ernst drawings on the left. And notice, this is what I, I wrote it out for you so you can see it. This is what they tell us in New Scientist magazine. A set of 19th century drawings that still appear in reference books are badly misdrawings, says an embryologist in Britain. Although Heckel confessed to drawing from what? Memory. Memory. He wasn't even looking at them. He's like, oh yeah, I think it all looked the same, right? And so, uh, although Heckel confessed to drawing from memory and he was convicted of what? Fraud at the University of Jena, the drawings persist. That's the real mystery, said Richardson. So you see, the scientists at the, at the top are like, yeah, yeah, this stuff's rubbish. This isn't scientific. This is a lie. But then they're like, yeah, yeah, but we just keep it in the textbooks because we got to teach the kids evolution. And so they perpetuate something they've known to be a lie for 90 years. Let's go forward. This is 1969. So now we're further back. This will blow your mind. I found the original, uh, you know, science article there. And it says, moreover, the biogenetic law, this idea that you can, it's just, notice, and, and notice it came to the point of being called a law. Now, what is a law in science? An unchangeable truth that has been replicated so many times that it is beyond dispute. That is a law. Do you see this law of embryology was wrong. Could it be that the law of evolution is also wrong? What a thought. What a thought. What does it say? Moreover, the biogenetic law has become so deeply rooted in biological thought that it cannot be weeded out in spite of it having been demonstrated to be wrong by numerous subsequent scholars. This is 1969. It goes on to say, even today, both subtle and overt uses of the biogenetic law are frequently encountered in the general biological literature as well as in more specialized evolutionary systematic studies. So they said, yeah, 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 it's still kind of there, you know. We, don't, we know it's not true, but, but it's still purported in the scientific literature. This says, this was in 1998, this is interesting. Notice this, this is taken from ontology and phylogeny re recapitulated, and it's in the American Scientist article of May, June of 1988. It says, surely the biogenetic law is as dead as a doornail. And notice they get this wrong. It was finally exercised from biology textbooks when? In the 1950s. As a topic of serious th theoretical inquiry, it was extinct in the 20s. You see, we're almost 100 years ago they knew it wasn't true. Almost 100 years ago they knew it wasn't true, yet what do we have here? 1994, but you can go on. I'll bet you, I'll bet you it's in your textbook. If you're, if you're in a biology course, I'll bet you you have pictures like this in your textbook today. They show the same thing. They make it look a little more, you know, these people obviously, you know, they got a pig looking like a human and so, so forth, but very, very interesting. Isn't it interesting that the scientists at the top, the scientists at the top, they have the secret information. 
that is only to be kept within the secret group of the intelligentsia. All the peons at the bottom keep getting the false information. Just keep teaching the kids. Keep giving them the false information. We know it's not true since the 1920s. They said we took it out of the textbooks in the 1950s, yet it's still in the textbooks today. I don't know where they got the idea that it got out of the textbooks in the 50s. I have no idea where that came from. Maybe it got out for a few years, but then they, people started losing faith or something, so they put it back in. I don't know. I, mean, I doubt it. I just made that up. But you understand what I'm saying. You know, and so why is it that these things continue to persist? Here's another one. Here we have in you know, 2001, whole biology, very same thing. Early in its development, vertebrate embryos have similar characteristics. As development continues, various structures are modified until they take on the characteristic adult forms. It's very convincing. Very convincing. It just happens not to be true. Does that make sense? You know, and, I, and it just makes me think, how many people have lost their faith because of this? How many people have lost their faith? What it is, and once again, they've taken their faith. Do you realize that this is faith? Because it's believing in something that you have not seen. You understand? It's believing in something you have not seen. Stephen Jay Gould said, he said, one, one of the most famous skeptics in the world, he said that the fallacy of Heckel's drawing was the academic equivalent of murder. That's a heavy statement, isn't it? And this is coming from an evolutionist, not from a creationist. He's saying this was the academic equivalent of murder. So we're going to look, our next, our next message is, did Darwin murder God? But I want you to think about this. According to what we've just seen, do, do you think there's enough evidence in what we've just seen to see that Darwin murdered God? Yes or no? D meaning, did Darwin show God is dead? No. I actually believe we're seeing more and more that these proofs are dead. More and more. And so, friends, we have been given these things. We, we see that there are answers. If you're willing to look, it, 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 the, the danger is that we just trust teachers. And the reality is we can't even do that within Adventist education. We need to study for ourselves. We need to get to know the truth. And we can find it. It's out there. The top scientists know the truth that these things are lies. But the trouble is you won't find out until you've lost your faith. Because it's not until you get in the top realms of science that they tell you, yeah, yeah, all the stuff we told you down there when you were young and, and dumb, yeah, 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 that was all wrong, right? Isn't that strange? What a thought. Could it be that God was right all along? Not only could it be, it is true. God said that he created the heavens and the earth. You know, God wants to solidify our faith. He wants us to share it with the people of the world. We have truth. And we also know the error. Can we prove every aspect of evolution? Or, I mean, of creation? No. I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't expect to. Nor can the evolutionists prove how life came about from non-life. Can I prove that God spoke the universe into existence? No, it wasn't there, right? But we do have evidence that several of the things the Bible talks about historically and in, even creatively, and even Dawkins says, maybe we're going to find evidence of design in nature. He recognizes that. Because maybe he's already beginning to see it. I don't know. I don't know. I can't put that in his mind, but it could be true. That maybe as he reads things, it begins to peak in his mind. And he begins to think, man, it seems like it must have been designed. 
because it was designed. And I want to share with you very quickly, you know, we, like I said, we make documentaries, very powerful things to share with friends, like the forgotten dream is to establish the validity of the Bible. The most incredible prophecy is establishing the validity of Jesus. Theodicy is the issue of if God is good, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? This is, many people tell us that's their favorite DVD, or multiple people have said that. The Ark and the Covenants, the Antichrist revealed the history of the Antichrist, the Antichrist Amendment, how history shows that the, uh, how the Sabbath was changed. The newest of, of these documentaries is Death, Near Death, and Life After Death. Then I showed you video clips from our newest health documentary. We have a series on Bible memorization and how the brain can be transformed called Transform Brain, Transform Life. And... We also have a seminar on overcoming habits and addictions. Someone struggles with any kind of negative habit. It doesn't even need to be drugs or alcohol. We have a seminar, six-part seminar on that. And we also have our newest series called The Gut-Brain Connection and Victory Over Depression, Anxiety, Obesity, Overeating, Anger, Lust, and Lifestyle Diseases. To me, this is my favorite uh, lecture series that we have. That's The Gut-Brain Connection. But the other DVDs, the documentaries are made to share with friends. Share with friends that, that may not believe in the Bible. Something that establishes your faith, but helps you to be able to share your faith with somebody else. So you can check them out. Our booth is number 321, 321, Anchor Point Films. But before we close, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. And maybe even some young people here who've they've been in their classes, in their biology course, and and we hear these things and they're so logical, they're so reasonable. I mean, you see the pictures and I mean, it's just, the proof is in the picture. Yet the picture came from fraud. And Father, there may have been people who've struggled, but Father, I pray that they would not give up for the lies of men, but rather that they would recognize that as it says in Titus 1 verse 2, in hope of eternal life in which God who can not lie. That there's a God who cannot lie. Yes, men can lie. We looked at, the, we looked at two new studies that showed that up to 65% of, of studies replicated failed to produce the similar results. And then we saw newer studies, 75% of studies do not, do not produce the same results, meaning that potentially the majority of studies are not in actuality true. And Father, would we give up our faith for a 25% chance of truth in the studies? Or would we say, if God has shown us through prophecy that Jesus was who he claimed to be, if we can look through prophecy and see that things, even up to the changing of the law of God, years after, over 500 years after Daniel, if we see that God told us the exact time period of the power that would persecute God's people and that brings us all the way to 1798. As we see the prophecy coming up to 1844 and as we see still prophecies fulfilling, we have all the evidence through prophecy, through history, through archaeology. Father, please, my prayers, we would not let go. We would not let go for some error of human being. All the evidence you've given us in your word. Pray that we would yield our lives to you wholly. In the name of Jesus, amen. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, When All Has Been Heard, in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, 
and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.